trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I am uh, welcoming a special guest as we start out the show today. Her name is Sarah Weaver. I first met Sarah through Young Voices. And uh, Sarah, you have since embarked on uh, a pretty ambitious uh, career that is taking you places. For those meeting you for the first time, tell my audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Will do. Thanks for having me on, Brian. So, yeah, I'm a reporter covering the social beat for The Daily Caller. Uh, I've been doing that since about May, uh, really, or end of May. Um, yeah, it's been going really well. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things always happening in the social beat. So it's, it's an action packed thing to cover. Well, I have you on the show today because I I wanted to get the latest word on a pro-life activist by the name of Mark Houck, who uh, was facing federal charges and I guess potentially up to 11 years in prison. Set the stage for us. Tell us a little bit about the story. Why was this guy facing charges? Is he really the monster that uh, the mainstream media has portrayed him as? And, uh, and I understand there's actually some good news in his case. Yeah, absolutely. So Mark Houck was, um, he's a pro-life activist, a father of seven. Um, he's very uh, religious. He's Catholic. Um, and he, you know, will pray outside of abortion clinics. And um, there's this abortion clinic volunteer by the name of Bruce Love. And he had apparently been sort of getting into the face of Houck's 12-year-old son and, and sort of telling him that, you know, your your dad doesn't care about women, etc., and, you know, that had been happening for a while, and um, it was really irking Hauk, and finally there was a confrontation where he, um, a Bruce Love got in the face of his 12-year-old son, and Hauk then pushed him away. And uh, the, the, court, the courts, the lower courts, actually threw out Love's um, sort of claims of assault and stuff, because they were saying, well, he was, he was within his rights to protect his son. So it wasn't until later that then he, fa- he faced... Um, FACE Act violation. And the FACE Act is um, the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. And um, it was signed into law in 1994. And basically, it makes it a federal crime to, um, I think the quote is, force with the intent to injure, intimidate, and interfere with anyone um, if that person is a provider of reproductive health care. So their argument was that um, what Hauk had done is he had basically caused like a disturbance that kept women from accessing like, you know, life-saving reproductive health care. Now, uh, the FACE Act is extremely controversial. There are a lot of pro-life activists who are being um, charged under it now because it has extremely broad implications. It's not very clear exactly where the sort of lines are between free speech and between blocking entrances and such. You know, there's a long history in the pro-life movement of um, prayers outside of abortion clinics, of protests about outside of abortion clinics, and I'm sure maybe some of them have gotten violent, but the vast, vast majority are extremely peaceful. Um, I talked to lawyers from 40 Days for Life, and they say that they had a great relationship with the FBI until this happened. Um, They had actually worked with them, letting them know when they were going to be outside these clinics, and they had a lot of respect for each other. So the FACE Act sort of changed that dynamic and made it more um, combative. And I think, you know, some are are pointing out there's kind of a more anti- um, pro-life bent to the FBI ever since um, this act really started getting used by um, Barrett Garland's DOJ. Sarah, one of the things that really struck me was when when Mark Houck was arrested, 
it wasn't just a matter of somebody showing up with a warrant saying, well, you got into this, uh, you know, dispute, uh, an abortion clinic. We're going to need you to come with us. I mean, they did a full on raid guns in his family's faces, you know, and and I mean, this is kind of how the Department of Justice has has been uh, conducting itself here the last couple of years. What a scary thought. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was definitely um, something about this case that really um, caught people's eye whenever it first broke was, yeah, I think it was about 15 uh, FBI agents stormed Houck's home, pointing their weapons at um, his wife and, and children who were um, in the house at the time. They they broke into the house in the very, very early morning hours. Um, according to his lawyers, Houck had tried to work with um, law enforcement and instead of like, you know, working with him because he wasn't like hiding from them or anything. Um, they chose this, this you know, intimidation method to sort of get his attention and send a message to pro-life Americans. And, you know, it was just an extremely traumatizing event. Um, I think Hulk's wife has been on shows talking about it. It was really um, traumatizing for herself, for the kids. Um, so, yeah, he was he was arrested by FBI agents. Um, he has been acquitted as of yesterday, which is good news. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, people are saying, okay, the system worked. And that's, you know, that's, I think largely true but some people were pointing out on twitter and i think there's something to this that sort of the process is the punishment you know even if he was acquitted he had to go through all these legal challenges all these battles i'm sure he accrued tons of expenses i'm sure it was a lot of stress for his family for friends for the community and you know that that shouldn't be overlooked you know this kind of stuff yes it ha- in the end you know justice was served absolutely but there has to be some sort of systemic change um, in the way FACE Act um, violations are handled and in the way FBI deals with pro-life Americans to really make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Yeah, it sounds like justice, uh, at least in this case, justice was was served because there were jurors who were not mm-hmm. willing to, to play the government's game here. But um, I mean, just to, to put on, on to put into perspective what was on the line for uh, for Mark Houck, I mean, he could have spent a decade or more in prison as well as thousands of dollars in fines if he had been convicted. Yep. Yeah, no, he was facing, yeah, like you said, decade decade or more in prison, I think it was up to 11 years. Um, tons in fines. And of course, like I said, he already, I'm sure, paid a lot in legal fees. Um, and, you know, he's a dad of seven kids. You know, you don't, you're not exactly rolling in money when you have seven kids. <laughs> um, and... Uh, yeah, but you know this. Um, yeah, like I said, justice was served, but but the whole case sort of shined a light on a general politicization of the FBI, especially um, the DOJ under Merrick Garland. Um, really, sort of goes after um, you know people who don't think the right way. Um, definitely blurs lines between um, you know free speech and not free speech. Um, and, you know, the, the way, I mean, the raid itself, if you just take the raid, you know, that itself was, if it was just face act violations, that would be, you know, kind of a problem because that act is really used in a lot of not great ways. But, you know, the the raid itself was just really, really beyond the pale. Like it was entirely unnecessary for them to do that, um, to make this show of force. And my sense is they realize they've kind of overplayed their hand here. Um, not a lot of people want to like, Think of the, you know, Catholic father of seven children getting raided in front of his family. Um, so, you know, maybe they have overplayed their hand. Maybe they will kind of take a step back. 
Or maybe they'll just be quieter about it. I don't know. But, you know, we'll see. Definitely good news here, though, yesterday. Are there any voices in Washington, D.C.? And by that, I mean people within Congress who are calling this out for what it is, calling out the heavy handedness, maybe even uh, making moves to to limit this kind of action in the future? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some... um, some Republicans who are taking action. I think Chip Roy has been one that's um, talked about it. Um, other, you know, sort of vocally pro-life, vocally um, pro-free speech, um, maybe even like religious, um, you know, lawmakers. I have not, and I may be wrong about this, but I have not seen any Democrats speak out about this case, or if they have speak out, out about this case, I have not heard them say anything in support of Hauk. Um it seems to me that the general sentiment is still that abortion is life-saving health care, that if you at all oppose a woman's ability to get this procedure, then you are threatening her life and threatening her ability to be equal to men. And, you know, they're very, very um, tentative to sort of go against that narrative. So I, for one, am not seeing much from the Democrat side against what the FBI did here. But there have been some good developments um, on the Republican side, um, sort of taking action against this. Um, we'll see what happens. We'll see if they follow through. Not quite sure, but there are definitely also some organizations that are doing a great job of keeping these Republicans accountable and making sure that they do do something about this. Man, it seems like the knives have been out ever since the Hobbs decision last year, which overturned Roe v. Wade. And uh, wow. The, to me, this I I don't know when when was uh, Pastor Hauk uh, arrested originally? Um, let's see. He was uh, raided in. Um, he was indicted in uh, September of 2022. So it's been okay. going on for a little bit. So this, I mean, but it just seems like you know this is abortion's always been a very political topic, but uh, it seems like the stakes are even higher. And uh, man, God bless the people who are willing to to stand up even at risk of, of arrest or, you know, being reviled, you know, for the sake of innocent life. This is powerful mm-hmm. stuff. Where can people follow you? I know that you do a lot of writing. I follow you on Twitter, but uh, for the sake of my audience, what's what's a good way that uh, that they can see what you're doing? Well, the best way is to uh, read The Daily Caller. Um, my reporting is there. I cover transgenderism. I cover abortion. I cover free speech issues, diversity, equity, inclusion stuff, all that social issues stuff. Um, and then also follow me on Twitter at Sarah Hope Weaver. I spell my name with an H, so S-A-R-A-H. And then I also have an Instagram. It's the same uh, username. So. Okay. I will have a link to your story from the Daily Caller about uh, uh, Pastor Hoke's, uh, his uh, acquittal. Sarah, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you. I appreciate you keeping tabs on all the things you're doing. That's got to be some yeah, heavy absolutely. lifting. <laughs> thank you, Brian. All right. Thank you. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, thanks for joining us. I don't know about you, but I get a little bit of a rush when I consider that uh, what I do on a daily basis at least in some people's minds, approaches the level of thought crime. I know, I, you, you probably think, Brian, you're, you're taking this whole idea of being a wrong thinker way too seriously, but I don't know how to explain it. I I have been in the game for a long time, meaning I've, I've worked in media for a long time. I understand 
you know, the the difficulties as well as the the advantages and the blessings of being able to disseminate information to large amounts of people, you know, in a, in a fairly efficient way. I think it's a wonderful thing. And there have been times where I've seen that, uh, you know, it, it can be well used. Case in point, I think back about, uh, holy cow, it's been almost 20 years, 18 years ago, we had the floods in southern Utah. This was 2005. <clears throat> major, major floods. Tons of snowfall and then a bunch of rain. And suddenly all of the, uh, the little rivers and tributaries in, in part of the watershed for that part of the state of Utah were completely overwhelmed. And I mean, you know, probably two dozen homes washed away millions upon millions of dollars of damage and it, and it was a situation that developed very very quickly and that was one of those times where I was very privileged to be uh, one of the people who was there in the hot seat uh, helping get that information out and uh, the staff that I worked with uh, at, at KDXU we, we 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 were doing round the clock you know coverage for for several days it was an exhausting week but to, to quote Father Mulcahy from MASH, I've never felt so needed. You know, I, I really did. I just, yeah, I thought it was it was amazing. Our salespeople for the radio station came, would, you know, go out about their business and come back in and say, you're not going to believe this, but it's like everybody in town is glued to the radio. And it was it was the perfect example of the need for information, good information, and uh, and the ability to deliver it. So I was very proud at that moment, you know, not necessarily like, yeah, we're all that, but just what an amazing opportunity to be part of uh, providing information that was really desperately needed. Now, shift forward 18 years, and it's it's such a different landscape. Mass media still exists. Social media, which at the time really was was not even a thing, is uh, is becoming a very uh, popular way for people to get their information. And yet, getting truthful, unspun unweaponized uh, or unagendized information, it's tough. If you want to find good sources of info, they're out there, but you got to be willing to do your work. you got to do the legwork and the thinking for yourself and vet every article, every source, even the ones you agree with, to make sure that somebody's not feeding you a line that uh, furthers you know, a particular narrative that uh, you're supposed to believe may or may not reflect the truth. So... That's, in a nutshell, that's why I do what I do. Because I don't have the answers. I, I'm looking for them. Like many people, I want to know, I want the truth. <laughs> and yes, I believe that we can handle the truth. But there are so many obstacles that uh, that stand against us. So it's it's a real privilege to be able to to do, in a small way, my part to help uh, at least get people thinking. I here's Here's my theory. If you're thinking, if you're questioning, you're going to find the truth. So if I can get you to, to at least, you know, think a little bit beyond, you know, whatever the, the dominant narrative of the day is, not that you're, you know, I'm not saying you're dumb. I'm not saying that, you know, because you're deceived and only I can help break the spell. I'm just saying, I'm trying to help people develop good, healthy habits as pertains to their thinking. All right. That said, I want to share with you a, a commentary from Thomas L. Knapp. You know, politicians have a habit of using words that don't exactly convey their authentic meaning. And when I hear the, the term constitutional carry, 
yes, I do get, uh, you know, a little warmth in the cockles of my heart that, oh, well, hey, you know, we're talking about less government to more ability to exercise your right to keep and bear arms. But I think Thomas Knapp has a very timely clarification here. It's worth consideration. He says, on January 30th, several Florida legislators introduced HB 543, concealed carry of weapons and firearms without a license, which, if passed, would allow, he puts that in quotation marks, anyone, Floridian or not, who meets specified requirements to carry concealed firearms in the state. Now, Thomas Knapp points out that many gun rights supporters laud HB 543 as not just a good step, but something called constitutional carry, even though, among other defects, it doesn't seem to legalize open, that is, unconcealed carry. So he says, let's review what restrictions the U.S. Constitution empowers government at any level to impose on the possession or carry of firearms. Now, he says, it's difficult to get more clear or prescriptive than the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. See that period at the end there? Well, the Florida bill ever so slightly lightens one specific unconstitutional burden on one specific right by imposing at least one patently unconstitutional burden on those exercising that right. They just carry valid identification at all times when he or she is in actual possession of a concealed weapon or concealed firearm and must display such identification upon demand by a law enforcement officer. Now, suppose that one does not meet the law's unconstitutional specified requirements, for example, having never been convicted of offenses related to controlled substances, but decides to carry concealed, as is his or her right anyway. Requiring that person to provide valid identification, valid seems to be undefined in the bill, is a requirement that the person incriminate himself or herself, which is a requirement forbidden by the Fifth Amendment. You see his point? Unless a police officer has probable cause to believe that you are committing or have committed a crime, who you are is none of that police officer's business. And if he or she does have such probable cause, it's his or her job to identify you, not your duty to identify yourself. So HB 543 isn't constitutional carry. It's a partial relaxation of unconstitutional restrictions combined with new unconstitutional restrictions. Real constitutional carry would look something like this. Quote, All Florida statutes, regulations, orders, and ordinances relating to the manufacture, sale, or other transfer, ownership, or carriage of arms are hereby repealed. All persons charged or held prisoner by the state of Florida or any subdivision thereof pursuant to such statutes, regulations, orders, and ordinances shall be immediately freed. All convictions of violating such statutes, regulations, orders, and ordinances shall be expunged. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission shall be established to determine the amounts, qualifications, and processes for paying restitution to those damaged or injured by said statutes, regulations, orders, and ordinances. End quote. That's pretty airtight. That's, that's a pretty solid example of, look, your property is your property. What's in your pocket is none of the government's business unless probable cause exists that you have committed or are committing a crime. Now, back to Thomas L. Knapp's uh, commentary. He says, the politicians behind HB 543 aren't on your side or on the Constitution's. They're just making a simple matter complex while sacrificing none of their illegitimate power over you. Now, I understand there, there are probably more than a few people right now going, Brian, that's a little extreme. 
I mean, how do we know that somebody isn't a criminal? And the fact of the matter is criminals don't care if it's legal or not to carry a particular weapon. Okay, that's the last thing on their mind is, no, I better make sure I'm in compliance. Got my valid ID? Where's my concealed carry permit? Oh, that's right. I can't pass the background check because I've been convicted of crimes. Do you understand? It only affects the law-abiding. And I say this as someone who for 30 years has had a concealed carry permit. Mine is due to expire sometime this summer. I think I'm going to let it expire because I really believe after 30 years, I'm finally to the point where I'm ready to stop asking permission to exercise a God-given right, which is the right of self-defense. Now, does that mean that I'm becoming lawless? Well, I hope not. I like to think that it uh, means maybe I've matured to the point where I realize I only have as many rights as I am willing to claim, use, and defend. And the way I live my life is I treat others the way I would want to be treated. Kind of hard to be a criminal, you know, when you're living the golden rule. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm not saying that it's going to cause you to wake up with a smile on your face every morning, but every morning that I do the show, you will find in your email inbox a copy of my show notes, complete with links to the various people that I interview, the various articles that I share with you, in the hopes that uh, you will find them interesting enough to maybe pursue and read for yourself, or even share with other people who likewise are, you know, working on attaining enlightenment. So, if you want to subscribe, it's very simple. Go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com. Click on the show notes, any of them. At the bottom of the page is a subscribe button. It will ask for your email. I will not spam you. I will not share your email with anybody. It's just another resource for wrong thinkers like you and me to uh, keep our heads straight. You know, it's hard to tell if uh, Dilbert creator Scott Adams is being sincere or facetious when he apologizes for being pro-jab. I remember, you know, watching over the last couple of years on Twitter, uh, he was he was pretty adamant that, look, trust the science, and you kooks who think that, uh, you know, vaccines are this or that, and, you know, that there's some kind of risk or whatever with the COVID vaccine, he, he, was, pretty, he was pretty open about ridiculing people, and, and actually he did go ahead and get the jab, as did a lot of people because it just made sense to them at the time. Scott Adams has since changed his tune. And this is the part where I'm like, I don't know if he's being, I, I don't know if, he, if he's just kind of playing us, but he says things like, well, okay, so you unjabbed, those of you who haven't received the COVID vaccine, how did you know that uh, it was a bad idea to do so? Or how did you know not to? Please explain this to the rest of us. And I think, well, that's, you know, I, how would I explain it? I've, I've tried to explain this to people, you know, and frankly, it's been the cause of more than a few heated discussions with people who, you know, just can't understand. Why, why would you be so selfish? Why would you be so stupid? Why would you risk your life by not getting this incredible vaccine that could save your life in the event of COVID? And I'm not going to answer for everybody as far as, you know, what, what are the reasons? Well, I did the research and I found that, you know, the, the risks outweighed the, the benefits. 
straight up, just, you know, as, as clear and plain as I can make it, the fact that it was being pushed so coercively, as in, it went from, we recommend the jab to you either get the jab or you will not function in society. It happened so quickly and the coercion and the coercive factor was so strong that it just set off every alarm that I have as far as, whoa, hold on here. Why are you pushing this so hard? I've said this before, you know, that line in the sand became a trench because of how hard it was being pushed. And it was government at the forefront that was pushing this. And then, you know, business jumped in and soon, you know, it it just had so many different aspects. And it wasn't just the jab. It also included the masks. It included the lockdowns. I'm not trying to tell you I've got the most refined conscience in the world, but I, from the very beginning, I was cautious about what was being urged of us. Well, we need to stop travel. We need to stop seeing loved ones. We need to shut down this business, stop going to church and so forth, put on this mask. It didn't make sense to me. My conscience was, was screaming at me saying, this is not right. Which, you know, okay, so I disagreed with, with you know, what uh, the experts were, were telling us. What evidence do you have? Why would you do this? And, <clears throat> you know, I, I can't say that I had a lot of evidence other than my conscience said, you need to be very careful here. And I've mentioned this before. There were times where it would have been so much easier to just go along, just put the mask on, just get the shot. And, and then, you know, the, the, the pushback would stop. But my conscience was saying, no, somebody has to be willing to stand up and say, I won't be forced into these things. So I guess that's a long way of saying my opposition to getting the COVID vaccine wasn't so much based on the efficacy of the vaccine. I hope that it works. Why? Because I have loved ones. About half my family has taken the vax. I don't want to see them getting, you know, myocarditis. I don't want to see them getting blood clots. I don't want to see them having other long-term unforeseen side effects. So I'm praying that it does work. But my line in the sand was, I will not be coerced. I will not be forced into something that is not my own decision. And at this point, at the risk of, of sounding proud, I'm very grateful that I stuck with that. I'm grateful that I followed my conscience. I'm including in today's show notes uh, an article from Robin Kerner. This is from the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org. I've only just recently discovered Robin Kerner. I, did, I shared uh, an article about uh, personal morality versus positional morality just a couple of weeks ago. This is worth your time. This is a long article. It's probably a good half hour of your time to sit down and read it. But Robin lays out how the unvaccinated got it right. And Robin starts with, you know, the story of Scott Adams, you know, the creator of Dilbert cartoon strip. And like a lot of other commentators, Robin points out that uh, Scott Adams based his own analysis of evidence of, on evidence uh, available to him and opted to take the COVID vaccine. But recently he posted a video on the topic that's been circulating on social media, and it is a mea culpa in which he says, the unvaccinated were the winners. 
And to his great credit, he says, I want to find out how so many of my viewers got the right answer about the vaccine, and I didn't. Now, Robin also notices and says, I think winners may be a little tongue-in-cheek because he seemingly means the vaccinated don't have to worry about the long-term consequences of having the vaccine in their bodies since enough data concerning the lack of safety in the vaccines has now appeared to demonstrate that on the balance of risks, the choice to be not vaccinated has been vindicated for individuals without comorbidities. So this is part of a personal response that he writes to Scott Adams, which explains how consideration of the information that was available at the time led one person, him, Robin Kerner, to decline the vaccine. Now, it's not meant to imply that all who accepted the vaccines made the wrong decision or that everyone who declined it did so for good reasons. But one of his big ones was he said the vaccine was rolled out without long-term testing. That's a problem. Data didn't support COVID policies that were actively and massive, that did not support COVID policies were actively and massively suppressed. That was suspicious, and it raised the bar of sufficient evidence for certainty that the vaccine was safe and efficacious. He says the establishment was prepared to do much more harm in terms of human rights and spending public resources to prevent a COVID death than any other kind of death. Why that disproportionality? Okay, that's a fair question. Fear generated a health panic and a moral panic or mass formation psychosis, which brought into play many strong cognitive biases and natural human tendencies against rationality and proportionality. And evidence of those biases was everywhere. This included the severing of close kin and kith relationships, ill treatment of people by others who used to be perfectly decent, the willingness of parents to cause developmental harm to their children call for large-scale rights violations made by large numbers of citizens of previously free countries without any apparent concern for the horrific implications of those calls. These are just a few of the warning signs. Here's another big one. Why was it that the companies responsible for manufacturing and ultimately profiting from the vaccination were given legal immunity? Why was it they were given 75 years before the information about uh, the testing of their vaccines could be released. That's not a real confidence builder. Now, he talks more about uh, these companies coming out against informed consent or bodily autonomy. And this is is a very well-thought-out article. It's not just shooting from the hip. You know, there are numerous statements by people like Joe Biden. You're not going to get COVID if you get these vaccinations. We're in a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Or the president saying the vaccines are safe, I promise you. Or Anthony Fauci, the vaccines are safe and effective. And yet we now know people who took the vaccine still get COVID. They still spread COVID. And now it appears that uh, there are other side effects that are beginning to come forward. Some may be related to the vaccine, maybe some aren't. Again, it really comes down to the power of conscience, at least for me. And my conscience says when someone is trying to force you into something, when they're trying to coerce you, that's a time to proceed with extreme caution. So I hope you'll take the time to look at Robin Kerner's explanation of how the unvaccinated got it right. And this is in no way a condemnation of those who ended up getting the jab. 
because they were either, you know, in a between a rock and a hard place and I either take the jab or I lose my job or maybe you had some comorbidities and felt like this is the safer route to go. Just understand the coercion that was brought to bear was immoral. That's the main reason many of us said no. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Two quick articles I'm going to share with you in this final segment. And, uh, you know, James Howard Kunstler is uh, becoming one of my favorite sources for illumination as to uh, what's going on all around us. And it's not like, oh, his word is infallible. He, He has not been wrong or can never be wrong. I don't know. He might be on something. I don't know. But more and more, his columns are to me like a high-potency reality supplement for those of us who prefer to live life without sedation. And his latest one is titled The War Against Us. Now, this is some big-picture stuff, but I think it's really worthwhile. Kunstler starts with a quote from Chris Hedges. We now live in a nation where doctors destroy health, lawyers destroy justice, universities destroy knowledge, governments destroy freedom, the press destroys information, Religion destroys morals, and our banks destroy our economy. I know that's a lot to unpack, but uh, there's a lot of truth in there as well. So James Howard Kunstler says, The question you might ask these days, how did we weaponize everything in American life against ourselves? Can you name an institution that is not at war with the people of this land? The exact mechanisms for all that bad faith stand in plain sight these days. And persons responsible can be easily identified. What's missing are discernible motives. For now, it just looks like the greatest collective act of ass-covering in history. It's pretty clear, for instance, that all the criminal misconduct in the FBI, DOJ, continuing to this moment, emanates from the years-long effort to cover up the seditious campaign to nullify Donald Trump starting well before November 8th of 2016. All the players in the agencies and their news and media accomplices stand to lose at least their reputations if the public cared about how dishonestly they acted. Many of those still working would lose their jobs and their livelihoods too, and quite a few would lose their freedom in prison. So their motive to keep up the skullduggery is simple self-preservation. Now, Kunstler says the COVID-19 pandemic looks like a pretty large-scale racketeering operation gone awry with plenty to hide. You have the reckless symbiotic relations between the U.S. public health bureaucracy and the pharmaceutical companies, and tons of money at stake, plus the colossal ego of hapless Dr. Anthony Fauci wishing to pose as an historic world saver, another Louis Pasteur or Alexander Fleming. And then you have the amazingly foolish act of imposing an untested, dangerous vaccine on the world and years of lying and covering up its repercussions of injury and death. Then the opaque and nefarious roles of other actors in the story, ranging from the Chinese Communist Party to the World Economic Forum to the Bill Gates and George Soros empires of money in what looks like a genocide. Kunstler says it's harder to unpack the enigma of the obviously unfit Joe Biden getting installed in the White House. He says, my guess... The Obama clack behind him knew that J.B. was easily manipulable, 
and that his lame rivals, uh, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, Liz Warren, and especially the proud socialist Bernie Sanders, could not be counted on to do exactly what they were told. So the Obama clack especially needed a president to appoint agency heads who would cover up its creation of an intel community Frankenstein and all that monitor has, that monster rather has inflicted on the American public. Now he says, of course, the main device the clack had for pulling Joe Biden's strings was the flagrant record of his many years of bribery and treason. The major effort to cover up all that criminality was the DOJ and FBI suppression since 2019 of the Hunter Biden laptop. And the most stunning upshot was that the incendiary evidence of bribery and treason came out anyway because so many copies of the laptop's hard drive got distributed and absolutely nothing was ever done about it, nor about the actual persons, Christopher Ray, William Barr, and Merrick Garland, who worked to squash it, making themselves accomplices to ongoing bribery and treason. All this criminal misconduct is connected in a foul matrix of lawbreaking. He says the fact patterns are well established. Dozens of excellent books have cataloged the misdeed of Russiagate. Scores of websites daily dissect the shady intrigues around the vaccine crusade. The infamies of gross election interference have been systematically laid out in the Twitter files of the past two months. Many books, published essays, and videos substantiate the reality of massive ballot fraud in 2020 and 2022 including the felonious role of Mark Zuckerberg's front org, the Center for Tech and Civic Life, and the election law manipulations of lawfare goblin Mark Elias. Now, Kunstler says there's an understandable wish that upcoming hearings in Congress will lead to a reckoning for all of this. To banish consequence from public life, as we have done, is a pretty grave insult to nature. But who can tell whether accountability might restore our institutions at this point? He says, we may be too far gone. The U.S. is visibly collapsing now. Our economy, our financial arrangements, our culture, our influence in world affairs, and our basic consensus about reality. We're entering a phase of disorder and hardship that's likely to moot the further depredations of a government at war with its people. For one thing, it's becoming impossible to pretend that this vicious leviathan has the money to carry on because the money is only pretending to be money. So it's no wonder that the collective ability for sense-making has failed. It will be quickly restored by each of us in the scramble to survive these disorders and hardships. He says the bewildering hypotheticals of recent years begin to dissolve like mist on the mountain, and things come back into focus. Your health, your daily bread, your shelter, your associations with other people close to you, your values, and most of all, the power of your own choices. Nature, much insulted and maligned, will sort out the rest. That's pretty good stuff. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to build him up as why he's, he's completely infallible. I'm just saying the guy does make a lot of sense. All right, one final note. Great article here from Annie Holmquist. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org. Children are our ticket out of the Marxist mindset. She says, the other week, British Olympian Laura Kenny announced that she was expecting another child. And the announcement in the BBC sports section caught Annie's eye for two reasons. First, that this child was being welcomed into a married, two-parent home. And second, that Kenny was so anxious and eager to see her baby arrive safely. 
In this day and age, both circumstances are anomalies. For most celebrity babies are born to parents who go through partners like a revolving door. And many women, particularly successful, high-profile ones like Kelly, seem to believe that having a child will permanently ruin their careers. Unfortunately, babies and children in general are low on the list of valued items in society. For instance, in her home state, they are close to enshrining abortion rights into state law. Many young adults across the country have decided they're better off without children. Delaying uh, having kids in favor of yoga or road trips. Peachy Canaan writes in the American mind they're unknowingly setting themselves up for later years of loneliness and neglect. So as much as we might like to blame young people and rail on them for holding such negative attitudes against children, before doing so, we should take a step back and ask ourselves where they got such ideas. And she says, given that the younger generation has been steeped in Marxist ideology at school and in society, it's not hard to realize where to lay the blame. For a rejection of life and children has been a prime component of Marxist-leaning groups for many decades. Former communist spy Whitaker, Whitaker Chambers testifies to this fact in his autobiography, Witness, saying one extreme group among the communists held that it was morally wrong for a professional revolutionist to have children. They could only hamper or distract his work. That was one of the penalties of being a communist. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And while Chambers admits he didn't entirely hold such views, he did assume he would never have children because of his involvement with the communists. But that changed when he found out that his wife was expecting his first child. And although he was initially thrilled and excited over the fact, he soon realized he and his wife must rid themselves of their child. Because abortion was a commonplace of party life, he says. There were communist doctors who rendered that service for a small fee. Communists who were more choosy knew liberal doctors who would render the same service for a larger fee. And to his surprise, however, his wife begged to keep their child. Dear heart, she said in a pleading voice, we couldn't do that awful thing to a little baby, not to a little baby, dear heart. Well, that little baby was allowed to live and in turn woke Chambers from the stupor of Marxist ideology he was steeped in, eventually delivering him from its clutches. So the fact is, children have a way of changing mindsets. She's right. The people having kids, raising them in good, solid, large families, these are the individuals who likely hold the exact opposite mindset of today's Marxist ideologies. So Annie Holmquist says, let's cheer them on. The next time you see a large family at the grocery store or hear of a young couple about to give birth to another child, tell them thank you. They and their children are our ticket out of the cultural mess we're in. She is so right about how children change your mindset. I will never forget the sense of responsibility and stewardship that settled on my shoulders when my first daughter arrived. It really was life-changing. This is The Brian Hyde Show.